catch up with Coronation Street on ITV2 now. Meanwhile, here on ITV1, Melvin Bragg meets the artists who influenced John Lennon and the Beatles. A few years ago, a jukebox came to light which was owned by John Lennon in the 1960s. The jukebox was a portable travel companion and it contains a list of 40 records written in Lennon's own handwriting. The records, a mix of rock and roll, rhythm and blues and soul, were Lennon's personal favourites. Some are classics, others remain obscure. Collectively, they represent the songs which shaped his musical education. Tonight's South Bank show, directed by Chris Walker, examines the contents of John Lennon's jukebox and reveals the influences behind the music which revolutionised pop. Welcome this week's Monday with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. After weeks of complaining that we got nothing, we got a whole bunch of stuff going on in this last few weeks. Oh, and we should mention, since this is going out on the 10th, happy 82 for John? Yes. Uh, we've got a special show that we're recording next week, but we'll go out the week after, and we'll tell you about that at the end of the show. Right. It'll be a special John show for us. <laughs> well, <laughs> Indeed. Although this is also a John Lennon show. I studied the record. How do, what are they saying? How are they doing it? How do they make this music? What is it that they're doing that, that excites me that I want to do it? Lots and lots of news. First off, Ringo's gotten COVID and he's had to delay his tour, although he hasn't officially announced whether he's canceling the Canadian shows or whether he's just postponing them. I think they canceled a week's worth of shows. That's about how long it takes to recover. The former Beatle has been on tour with his all-star band and is canceling five upcoming shows in Canada. Those shows are October 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th, and 9th. And he canceled two shows over the weekend. One at the Four Winds Casino in New Buffalo, Michigan, and at Mystic Lake Casino in Prior Lake, Minnesota. Uh, apparently Ringo hadn't yet tested positive, and they were just thinking it was a cold or a flu or something to do with his voice. And then on the Monday, they came back, and I, you know, I guess Ringo tested positive the Monday morning, and they said, well, we're going to have to cancel. And especially because the intervening week consisted of international travel to Canada. And, and that's a no-no. He's returning home. Hopefully by the time you hear this, Ringo will 
either be back out on the road or at least preparing to be back out on the road because he still has another week or so of shows and then he's got to figure out what he's going to do about this week of shows, which is either canceled right. or delayed. But mainly, we wish him well. Indeed. He is 82, and COVID is nothing to play around with. We want to see those feet for many more years to come. <laughs> right. That's number one. Number two, we got some really cool new photos of the Beatles from July of 61. Yeah, things I had never seen before. So it looks like somebody finally got that film developed. They were published by uh, London's Evening Standard. Apparently they were doing their own sort of antiques roadshow thing for the 60th of Love Me Do. And somebody came up with these photos. Yeah, and they're real cool. The Beatles at their fighting best. <laughs> uh, Mark Lewison had just an amazing quote about what they look like. He refers to the photos as featuring four whippet thin, undernourished lads. You look at John, you know, we think about John in the 70s, and everyone goes, oh, you know, when you went on this macrobiotic diet, he was just so outrageously thin. <laughs> He's thinner than that in this photo. His shirt is just hanging off of him. Yeah. But when these photos were taken, they had just come back from their first extended time in Germany. Well, this will be the second. Oh, that's right. Uh, 61. They got kicked out at the beginning of the year because George wasn't 18 and Pete and Paul burned the condom. Right. Then they wound their way back. And so this was the first real long trip. As the story goes, they lived on cornflakes at the Seaman's Mission. You know, that's where they went for their food. Not to mention the fact that they were gobbling down the Preludin at the time. Well, yeah, but they weren't making a whole lot of money, and they were living in a foreign country, and so they were just young kids. They didn't eat, right? I wouldn't blame it all on the drugs, but... But the drugs didn't help any. No, the drugs helped very much. <laughs> the drugs helped the shape that the four of them are in. Paul has his Hoffner, John has his Rickenbacker, but George is still playing the Futurama. Yeah, but I'd say the photos are definitely action photos. You can see that they're playing hard. Yeah, Paul has that look in his eye. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. He may well be singing Long Tall Sally. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, what if there's anything on the back of the photos? I guess we'll find out because apparently these photos are going to auction sometime soon. All right. And then the other thing is they're wearing their leathers as far as the trousers, but it was certainly in the middle of summer, and we all know that the cavern was uh, well known for its stuffiness. They were not wearing the leather jackets. No, white shirts. Cotton white shirts, and they almost look like a different band. There are no Beatle haircuts on this stage. They do look like a different band. You know, we've talked about this before, that how they're kind of, in many ways, the predecessors of punk. Well, they look like four guys from the 70s in these photos. Yeah, kind of. It's an incredible piece of history, and I'm glad we got to see it. Yeah, it never ceases to amaze me. There's always something new. And at least, you know, for the foreseeable future, there will be. Yeah. Number three, we had about a half hour of the Japanese police as they saw the Beatles' visit of 1966. We, we've had some of that, but not from the Japanese police. Right. 
as far as real interest to us, we get about a minute of the July 2nd show, which, you know, we've had the two color shows from earlier in the week, but the July 2nd show is brand new. The, the thing that interested me is we'd always had that garish orange sunrise colored background behind them. Not for the show on the 2nd. That was something just for the TV show. There was a Genesis book a while back with all the backstage photos. It's funny. That thing really was just a piece of cardboard behind them. Little twinkle lights and cardboard because it looks so good. You know, all through the years, it's like, oh, wow, they actually built a really impressive looking stage. No, it's something they put up there to look good on TV. And then they threw it out before they even finished the uh, set of shows in Japan. Right. And then the other thing about this, everybody's faces other than the Beatles is blurred out. All the fans, all the cops, even Brian Epstein. <laughs> yeah, and it's important to remember that that was a controversial concert for Japan because they were playing at a venue that was meant for martial arts. And the fact that a pop band was coming to play there was controversial. And in many ways, it was a predecessor to everything else, which would happen on the 66 tour they have frequently commented on it was the most planned out our itineraries had ever been we were only allowed out at the time for the concert when it was worked out like a military maneuver you know at at uh, 5 30 precisely we will knock on your door which was on the schedule as exact time then they said you will now line up outside the room at 5 32 we will leave the door we will now walk to the lift. 5.33, we will be at the elevator. The elevator takes like, you know, a minute eight to get down. At 5.35, we'll be down in the car park. And they said, you will get in car with Mr. Evans. Then they had the seating arranged in all the cars. It's like amazing efficiency. We'd never seen the like of in Britain. Just to be how we were. They would knock on the door and we wouldn't never come out. <laughs> it would just totally wreck their timings. And you'd see all these guys just absolutely balmy as we hadn't walked down the corridor at 7.14 and a third, you know. It's just... <laughs> but John did manage to find a way to get away for a little bit. That's out there. And like you say, while it's not the most gripping footage, it's fascinating when you put it in this context. Right. And then the last thing, you know, we've been saying that we haven't gotten anything new from the revolver box. Well, we finally have. You know, I guess they really did probably decide to delay things on account of the Queen's passing. Could be, but that's just a guess. Yeah, it could have been their schedule, but still, you know, that was, what, three weeks between when we got Taxman and when we got this. The demo of Tomorrow Never Knows, which admittedly we've had on Anthology, although this one sounds much better. Well, that's the point of this box. Is uh, It's no longer this sort of thump, 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 thump. You can actually hear Ringo's drums. Even on this first take, Ringo is playing out of his mind. <laughs> right. But we'll save our in-depth discussion of it to when we get the revolver box. But it is out there. I have a listen. It's really a splendid time. It makes me... Look forward to the box even more. Hopefully this now means that we will get some more regular bits and pieces from the box. As we draw closer, we're now into October, so we're really only three and a half, 
four weeks away. So if we get two more things, I'd be happy. <laughs> Which means if we don't get two more things, you'll be unhappy? I'll just be impatient. I won't be unhappy. That's the feeling that we all got back in the 60s you know new beetle album is coming out at a certain time and you just impatient they didn't leak anything this is like yeah although things did hit the radio days two weeks beforehand i mean you know day in the life was being played well before pepper came out well you say that but not for most of america not in the middle of texas <laughs> right well when pepper came out i was in houston so early release was not really much the early release for sergeant pepper was penny lane and strawberry fields basically which was an actual single and you could go pick it up in stores i think that's one reason why pepper was such a surprise you heard it all for the first time very cool so our main topic for this week in 2004 there was a program on the south bank show now we've previously talked about the south bank show they were responsible for the uh, sergeant pepper anniversary special which we talked about a couple months back right they're fans uh this was a very well done special this was on something that they called john lennon's jukebox right it was a really interesting bit of television about the beatles that had very little beatles in it it was more about their love for rock and roll specifically john's but the love of the music and, uh, and occasionally there were, you, they played a few things that... Uh, Little bits and pieces. They had a really nice copy of the Granada Cavern footage here. And you have to remember, this was after Anthology, so a lot of this stuff was out there and was available for licensing. Right. In 1965, I would guess this was probably early 1965, John bought a new toy. He bought a KB Discomatic jukebox, which could hold 40 records. Right. And when I first read about it, I'd never seen one. And I couldn't really imagine hauling a jukebox around on tour. I mean, that would kill Mal. But it was uh, basically just a suitcase. Yeah. Once I saw it, it's like, oh, okay. I could see hauling that from hotel room to hotel room. Just going by the records that are in the thing, he probably carried it with him through the 65 tour, maybe through the U.S. 65 tour. But I don't even know if he had it with him in 66. It might have just been a dalliance. He did fill the jukebox himself, and he wrote out the little cards telling you what songs were on there. And these were his personal favorites. Very heavy on the 1965 material on what would have been contemporary. The rarer things are the older things that John specifically went out and you know either asked Brian or asked somebody to get for him to put in this jukebox. Oh my God. What's that? Oh boy. This really was sort of like, oh, let's pick up our iPod from 20 years ago and see what was on it. It <laughs> says something about us, the music we chose and what we listened to, what was important to us at that point in time. Right, and since the records are of that period, they don't go past a certain time frame. It's not like something he played with for the rest of his life and changed stuff out. It's of a time. The latest, there's a couple from late 66, early 67. John certainly stopped dealing with it. He left it at Kenwood, and I guess Ringo inherited it. And then when Ringo moved out, he didn't take it. It was then sold at auction. And the fellow who bought it was a, a Bristol-based music promoter named John Midwinter. And he was so fascinated with it that he restored it, got pristine copies of the records, 
and tried to get this special made. And obviously, he succeeded, although he did not live to see the final product. It's just amazing to me to to realize that, you know, they kind of went through and left everything behind. I mean, they didn't save copies of their lyrics a lot. I mean, just stuff got left behind. Well, this is John, not Paul, also. Paul, I'm sure, would have kept it. Paul keeps everything. Uh, he recently showed up at Stella's fashion show, once again wearing a suit of his from uh, 1974. Paul kept everything. John, not so much. I mean, you know, and you, you also kind of understand. He, oh, well, you know, Ringo has it. I'll, I'll trust Ringo to hold on to it, not realizing that Ringo would allow uh, the studio to get used by Motley Crue. <laughs> I love the fact that th- there's a recording out there of Paul demoing We Can Work It Out on acoustic guitar. And it's clearly John's copy because it gets about two verses and then John starts recording something. I mean, he obviously was a good set probably that Paul handed him and then he just recorded over it. <laughs> Does Paul have a copy of that? You never know. It's amazing how much of John's stuff survived. I mean, what if he'd recorded over this yellow submarine that we're all anxiously waiting for? Thankfully, he didn't. We don't really know a lot about the provenance of some of this stuff. I mean, is John's demo of what he did on Yellow Submarine what he gave to Paul? Who knows? And then the other thing about John Lennon and jukeboxes, John Lennon was certainly a big fan of jukeboxes. He talked about it during the rock and roll sessions, and, and we'll we'll get into that uh, a little bit here as well. But it's well known that during the house husband years, one of his getaways was in one of the upper rooms in the Dakota they created Club Dakota, and well, Yoko bought him, you know, one of those big fancy worlds or jukebox boxes. Right. And John, once again, filled it with records. Yeah. I would like to see someone make a comparable disc out of what was in there, you know? Yeah. That, that would be interesting. Of what we've heard, it was a little bit less rock and roll. Obviously, he was getting a little bit older. He was getting a little bit more sentimental. And so, you know, there is some of that. The same sort of schmaltz that he would accuse Paul of was apparently on his jukebox in the Dakota. I like schmaltz. I just don't like Paul's schmaltz. <laughs> the South Bank special starts off with Bebop Alula, which, as with any good Beatles story, is probably the best place to start. Well, I, yeah. Well, That was there when John met Paul, and John is represented by a couple of radio interviews he did from the 70s. He did a couple of days where he actually came in and played DJ, and then there's a famous interview from uh, right around the rock and roll session where he just talks about records, and he, he brought in some records and played them on the air. 
not surprisingly, a lot of those records were the same records that we've got here on the jukebox. Looking at the whole list, there's a familiarity about it. I mean, there are lots of songs that John ended up recording over his lifetime because they're his favorite songs. And there's a lot of stuff that went into the Get Back sessions. Right. The rock star of the time that they got was Sting. They weave Sting in and out of this special. Talk about Bebop Alula. It seems, a record seems like a, a magical art, artifact, you know, something that came from another planet, America. <laughs> Sounds like Philip Norman. <laughs> <laughs> they then move from that into a Little Richard Slippin' and Slidin', which is represented by Lieber and Stoller. I've seen Lieber and Stoller before, but to have them here both talking about their own songwriting and talking about their appreciation of Lennon and the Beatles is really pretty special. Yeah, they're definitely one of the foundations of rock and roll. Our next two guests have worked together writing songs for over 35 years. These guys, these guys are truly amazing. Uh, they could have retired on the money that they made from a song called Hound Dog, made popular by Elvis Presley and others, uh, but they moved on to write such classics as On Broadway, Jailhouse Rock, Stand By Me, Yakety Yak, uh, Love Potion Number 9, and the list really does go on and on. That's not something you say on talk shows. It actually does go on and on. Their songwriting fueled a, a bunch of acts, and the Beatles covered them not only on record but in their live shows had a couple of requests to do a tune called kansas city so i'd like to do If that was our jukebox, I can assure you there'd be 500 Lieber and Stoller songs on it, and they might be one Little Richard. They got Little Richard doing his thing uh, from an archival interview. I created rock and roll. I was the king. Elvis wasn't the king. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they show Lieber and Stoller looking at this device. They, they say that it looks like a giant typewriter from 1943. When everything was big. Phones were big. Typewriters were big. And jukeboxes were, well, not quite so big. Well, that was 65. <laughs> we get one of those archival interviews from John's saying that, that rock and roll was about being black and poor. And what we learned from the music was that it was actually about being strong, powerful, and beautiful. Kind of deep. It's uh, a reflection on how the scene, the culture, gets transmitted to the people who love it i think that's why people like the punks later on they like the whole culture the whole scene and he liked the scene of early rock and roll truck drivers and bluesmen the next song that they go to was new orleans by gary u.s bonds you know every southern belle is mississippi queen down the mississippi down in new orleans i said It's a good song, but it surprised me a little bit that John would have chosen it when he had a limited selection of records to put on here. Oh, I like that song a whole lot, actually, so that doesn't surprise me at all. That would have been one that John probably would have heard at NEMS. 
Yeah. I think uh, John Lennon and the guys would have probably heard it in 19, uh, somewhere in 60, because for about a year nobody played it, no radio station in the country would even touch it. If John heard it fairly early on, this was one of the even real early breakthrough records, apparently. Right. As Bonds describes it, it was R&B and it, pop, and it was pop, uh, so it got played on both the black and white stations, which would then transmogrify over in England to actually be played. He also mentions that they didn't know he was black. The po- folks playing the record. Exactly. He, he had a certain sound, but the people didn't associate it with black, so... It became more popular. It's unfortunate that's a reason. That's a whole separate show. We know about the issues of race and rock and roll in the United States in the 50s. Right. Although I like his response. It's a very Muhammad Ali response. I was just too cute to be true. (laughs) Even Ali didn't come from nowhere. He too had his influences. No one does. Then we move on to another Lieberstoller song, one which we're all real familiar with, Some of the Guy and Richie Barrett. Yeah, great song. For those of you who've never heard it, it starts exactly like Instant Karma. Which John agrees with. You'll notice the intro is slightly like Instant Karma. Yes, the sound of the keyboard. I mean, it's exactly that, which everyone agrees is really an homage to Ray Charles. He was on a Ray Charles kick. Yeah, I'm doing a Ray Charles takeoff from some other guy. Lieber installer. Uh, for the longest time before I heard the original, I didn't know this was a Lieber and Stoller song. I knew it wasn't a Beatles song. I knew they were covering something, but I hadn't quite put the pieces together. I mean, Richie Barrett is not that well known here in the States. Nobody I know over here seems to have ever heard of it. And it's called Some Other Guy by Richie Barrett. There are Lieber and Stoller songs, but a lot of people don't realize that they were also kind of what, like, what max martin is now you know they would go help other people create hits and so they actually worked on a lot of stuff you wouldn't go well that's Lieber and Stoller. jerry and mike you'd go to them because you wanted a hit and they seem to have that formula and they interview richie barrett you don't see much of him in interviews there are a couple pieces on youtube but particularly in 2004, that was a revelation to me. Right. You know, this guy actually exists. I mean, I heard the record at that point, certainly, but it's like, oh, wow. And he says exactly what, what you say there, that uh, the, that you you go to Jerry and Mike if you wanted to make a hit. Yeah. Kind of like Michael Jackson calling up Paul. What do you want to do? What, why are you calling me? I want to make hits. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I will say that one of my favorite pictures in this television show is a still of Lieber and Stoller showing Jailhouse Rock to Elvis Presley. That's one of my favorite Presley songs. That was just kind of cool to see. Then we move on to another song we're very familiar with, Twist and Shout, the Isley Brothers version. Right. They're up there, they're talking about the twist craze and and how that's what they're doing, but they want to take credit for the woos. They start doing a woo-woo, we are doing a woo Shake it up, baby. I think between that and uh, Little Richard. I think it almost all came from Little Richard. Only because Little Richard says so. (laughs) 
Paul learned everything he knows from me. <laughs> I created rock and roll. <laughs> so the Isleys, when looking at it, said, oh, yeah, yeah, the Beatles, they just wanted to be like us, <laughs> which is not untrue. They were a bar band playing their favorite music. I think that there's a, an early narration by Lennon who basically talks about hearing this music and just kind of being like, how do you do this? How do you do this kind of music? And that's all they were doing. They were playing songs they liked and figuring out how to do it. But if you listen to the Isley Brothers version of Twist and Shout and the Beatles version. They're very different. The Beatles kicks ass. And that's what they added to a lot of the copy songs that they did in their career. They just gave them a kick. That the originals don't have. Please, Mr. Postman. You know, there's just a whole different vibe as opposed to the, the original. We move on from there to Watch Your Step, Bobby Parker, which is the other one which starts in a very similar way to some other guy into a half a million Ray Charles songs, including What Did I Say? And again, John recognized that. Yeah. Some of it's sound, I think, as well. Bobby Parker's a guitar player. And Bobby Parker, so he's in the special, and he actually plays his guitar, which actually kind of reminds me of some of the stuff that went on in uh, Complete Beatles, where they interviewed people and they actually picked up their instruments and demonstrated something. Right. They show how the Beatles basically repurposed that riff into I Feel Fine. Which he recognizes. I mean, he, he says he feels like he should get, get a little bit more credit than he does. But that's another cool bit that John talks about, which is like he would play these riffs as he wrote. And then when he, it came time to really do it, he would change it. Because if you play somebody's riff, they'll sue you. And so you could see how he did that with I Feel Fine especially in the early days, would often write a melody, uh, a lyric in my head to some other song because it was, I can't write music, so I would carry it around as somebody else's song and then change it when I got down to putting it down on paper or putting it down on tape. Consciously change it because I knew somebody's going to sue me or everybody's going to say, what a rip-off. I was flattered by that. I thought it was a cool idea, but uh, I still had back in my mind that I should have got a little rec more recognition for that that riff would live on the almond brothers yeah for sure That whole thing of what is a specific riff, a copyrightable thing, and what is the genre of what you're playing? Because that riff that they play, I've heard Stevie Ray Vaughan play that a bunch. It's a thing that's out there, and it doesn't belong to anybody, except those people who say, well, that belongs to me. 
And to a certain extent, that's what rock and roll is and always has been going back to it was gospel at one point in time and then it was country at one point in time and it was the blues at one point in time. But riffs have survived all the way from there up to the present. Right. It's like the Pee Wee Creighton riff, which found its way to the intro of Revolution. It's like, you wouldn't have expected that, but there it is. Exactly. It's amazing that when John went to do Revolution, that he didn't do something more to change uh, Creighton's thing, because it's there. In the same way that Paul is actually playing a changed up version of Bad Penny Blues on Lady Madonna. They're similar, but they are not the same. John's playing the same opening there. Yes, very much. End of part one. End of part one. Intermission. We move on to, to some folks that, that we're real familiar with, uh, uh, Bruce Chanel and Delbert McClinton. Yeah, not so much Bruce Chanel. The song is Hey Baby. Because Once Delbert starts talking, he goes. He, he talks about playing the cross harp. Do you know the difference between the, the blues harp and the cross harp and some of these different kinds of harmonicas that he's talking about i got a little bit lost there there could be a button that changes certain things the reeds cross harp he demonstrated where you would play a line a melodic line but then you could play it so there's several notes you hear the melody but there's several things going which means you're playing both reeds on the record I was playing straight harp, which is like this. But over the years, I've got to where I play it cross harp, which is like this, because you can push it around more. I guess that kind of makes sense. And he says it can't really be taught. <laughs> Wonderful line from, from Delbert McClendon. After a while, it's a little like masturbation. You fool around with it. You'll figure it out. You know, what he points out is that in playing the harmonica, you can't show somebody what you're doing with your tongue or your lips, really. And so you can't teach it to anybody. A guitar player, you can go, well, you do this. and here's Put your fingers here and, and play these three strings. Right. So it's a different animal. Despite the legends, we now know that the legend couldn't have been completely true. The first recording of Love Me Do was before the Beatles met Delbert McClendon and Bruce Chanel. So the John got that off of Bruce Chanel, well, not so much. Because, I mean, it, it's a crude version, but he is definitely playing the harmonica on the Pete Best, the Have a Nagila Love Me Do. The story, as it's always been told, is... Delbert McClendon took John aside and, or John specifically asked him, how do you do this? And well, uh, you know, he may have taught him a little bit and the, the riffs certainly got a little bit fancier when they came to the final version of Love Me Do, but it was there before they met. Now it may have come off of the, off of hearing the record. That's what I always thought. Both John and Delbert McClendon has, have at various times said that, oh, yeah, I actually showed him some things. Since they both said it, I'm going to go with it happens. Or some version of it happened. Yes. It continues with them where they talk about seeing the girls and uh, a slightly gruesome story about, again, much like the punks in, in later years, that they would carve initials into their arms with razor blades. 
just because they wanted to be closer to the bands. That was even more than they'd ever seen in America. They foresaw what would be known as the British invasion happening over there. Right. Memories like that, when the story's told, it's like the girls were cutting initials in their arms. Well, what does that mean? One girl had cut the initials in her arms or 50 girls had done it. We tend to think of the girls, even the girls following the Beatles all around Liverpool as, as kind of being these nice English schoolgirls. Right. These girls were running alongside the bus screaming and hollering and they kept doing this and look, and they had taken a razor blade and cut Bruce's initials in their arms. I guess there were some, the, the girls of the Teds and things, but it's not something that, that I would have thought about, really. Right. It, again, it makes it interesting to have it here, to have them telling it while they're talking about playing in Liverpool with the Beatles and the Big Three and, and just seeing what was coming up. Yeah. We move on to uh, Booker T and the MGs, Bootleg. The stack stuff is very well represented in the special although in john's jukebox motown is just as represented there's less of it here i would assume for rice reasons in the tv show could be but Stax was a very big influence on the beatles right and so they get steve cropper it's kind of a shame and it's kind of good that what steve cropper is known most for these days is being a member of the blues brothers band yeah. That was where I first learned about Steve Cropper. Well, you're just a lad. The Blues Brothers, I mean, in brief, how did that come about? And how did you, how did they let well, you know? Well, you know, there again, just being in the right place at the right time, being lucky. I got a phone call from John Belushi, and he was in New York. You didn't know him? At all. No, I had met him. He didn't know me, but I had met him. I met him at a Paul McCartney party. And he was, uh, Paul hired him to do that imitation of Joe Cocker that he was real good at. Mm -hmm. And he had done it that night and he was outside smoking a cigarette and I walked up and introduced myself. He didn't know me from Adam. So when he called me, he didn't even remember that. I'd, I talked to him about it later and he said, I remember being to the party. Okay, that was a party in LA and that's where I first met John Belushi. I was fully aware of Booker T, the MGs. I was familiar with stacks. So once again, Sting comes up and tells us they weren't flashy jazz players. They just riffed. You know, they played three or four notes per riff, and they just stuck to it. And it was, it was soul music. Then the other stack story is that they were actually trying to record the album, which would eventually become Revolver at Stacks. Yes, they were going to re record in Memphis. Amongst other things, they really wanted to get that bass sound. Paul and the rest of the group were like, oh, how do we do that? Well, maybe one way we do that is we go record there. Right. So, you know, there's letters from George saying, keep it undercover, but we're planning to go and record our next album there in the States at Stax. Yeah. I don't know how close Brian got, but the way I've heard the story was that Stax eventually just priced themselves out. Really? Huh. Between the cost of putting them up in Memphis, and then actually getting them into the studio and studio time, Stax just asked for too much. Well, how stupid. Maybe we can be thankful it didn't happen. As you said on a number of occasions, maybe things really did occur the way they were supposed to. Is if they'd recorded in Stax, Revolver would definitely not be the same record. 
No, but I bet you uh, got to get you my life would have rocked the hell. I mean, it would have been a thing. <laughs> I'm thinking that the Stones were successfully recording in the United States quite a bit. I'm just surprised that Stax would be that short-sighted. Yeah, again, Mark, we're waiting. Right. I bet you there's paperwork on that. Uh, oh, there absolutely has to be. Right now, it's just kind of whispers and what people have said. I mean, all we know for certain is that George was writing to his DJ friend saying, oh, yeah, we're planning to be over at the end of this next month to work our new record at Stax. And then, you know, it just kind of disappeared. It'll be interesting. We'll probably find out that whoever George wrote that letter to leaked the news and that killed the deal. George, you were supposed to keep that quiet. <laughs> okay, uh, the next disc, uh, uh, a great disc, uh, Wilson Pickett's In the Midnight Hour. I love Wilson Pickett. What's not to love? Although John had an interesting view on it. He described it as being another four-in-the-bar cowbell song. Yeah. He had a few of those, but they keep playing Midnight Hour, which wasn't really it. John described it as the best example of a delayed backbeat, which keeps pushing the record along. When I hear a Wilson Pickett record, I want to make one of those. Early Beatles, certainly there are a couple of those. Uh, when I Get Home is one. Yeah. You can see how that affected certainly the Hard Day's Night and Beatles for Sale albums, I would say. Yeah. There's a direct line from what he was listening to to the music that he was writing. Yeah, I agree with that. We move on to Otis Redding with Booker T, uh, his version of My Girl. Right. That is a Motown song. I don't know why John wouldn't have chosen the Temptations version, the IMHO better version, but, uh, uh, you know, there's... <laughs> Otis Redding, What yeah. you can say about Otis Redding? You can't say anything about Otis Redding. Yeah. Well, you know, Otis's version is less produced, in a way. It doesn't have the... My girl, my girl, my girl. But that's the Temptations. Well, exactly. You're saying, I don't know why John picked that version over the Temptations. It's like, well, maybe it's the, he likes that version rather than the more produced thing. Then Sting comes back in. Well, I mean, it was the Beatles, really, who, who awoke us all to, to, uh, to black music in the 60s. I don't think we'd have heard it without the Beatles. You know, they recorded a lot of... Smokey Robinson songs and sort of brought him into into our view. So we, we owe a lot to that. That's kind of what we said. I mean, it was the Beatles that, to a certain extent, got Motown recognized in England. That quote, though, I'm thinking over off stage are the Supremes. <laughs> we have next, we have a Rescue Me, Fontella Bass. Now, she didn't. What did she go on to do much else? She's got a great voice. No, not quite a one hit wonder, but we didn't get too much more from her. Right. Lieber and Stoller say that her voice was in a class with Aretha Franklin's, and I don't think that's too far off the mark. Rescue Me, I could see it is comparable with Aretha Franklin, but you know, Aretha kicks some serious butt. Singing Carol King songs, among other things. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they got Fontella Bass here on camera, and she wants to talk about that there were political overtones to the song. I never would have gotten that. No, I wouldn't have either. And she also tells a story about dropping the sheet music, and so she hums to a part of a song while she reaches down. They wrote an extra verse for her, so she didn't know what the words were, and so she didn't want to stop the band, and she just hummed. 
which is pretty funny. It's also pretty representative of what goes on in the studio. Yeah, it it can, depending on who your producer is. (laughs) Phil would stop right then and there. Absolutely. It's like, what the hell did I tell you to go? Mm -mm." Well, uh, working with Phil is very difficult because uh, I guess he's a perfectionist, so he likes to spend a lot of time redoing things and re-listening and and it's very time consuming it comes very hard for i mean rock and roll's got to be spontaneous and done a little faster sting describes it just simplicity that's that's really what it is simplicity and emotion (laughs) right He's so erudite. Sting's comments are not real deep. <laughs> Look, record. <laughs> Pretty. <laughs> okay. Simple. And she's proud that she is, in fact, the only woman who's represented on John's Hootbox. Uh, the only record by a woman on uh, in out of the 40 discs. Yeah, I'm flipping through real fast. Little Richard. <laughs> <laughs> end of part two so we, we go into part three do you believe in magic by the love and spoonful yeah i was kind of delighted to see that john sebastian's there on camera and they show that uh, he had taken out timmy shaw's send you back to georgia and replaced it with do you believe in magic sometimes i wonder did i make a mistake when i brought you from the south but i'm gonna send you back to georgia He'd had send you back to Georgia, crossed it out, and put in uh, uh, Do You Believe in Magic by the, the Lovin' Spoonful. There's a definite time frame in this because the Lovin' Spoonful are one of the few acts that actually have two records on this. You know, they have Daydream as well. So these are songs that John was into at that time, clearly. Well, I mean, not just John. I and mean, Paul has always said that Do You Believe in Magic was a big influence on Good Day Sunshine. Right. We know that they were sharing rooms on the road. Play it again. Play it again, John. Play it again. I'm not <laughs> going to play the damn record one more time, Paul. <laughs> but I'm going to put it on my jukebox. Or, <laughs> or maybe that song is on this jukebox because Paul told me to put it on there. Could be. Or Paul gave it to him. Oh, you got an empty slot, John. Here. We don't want that Timmy Shaw record. Here, put this in instead. Right. There were two CDs put out. It's a single two-CD set. Right. But do you know whether the order they have them in is the way they were on, on the jukebox? Definitely not, because you have some of the A and B sides on the CD set. It's been 20 years, but I kind of wish that someone would put out a book which showed the workings of this thing and showed all of John's handwritten notes. We kind of see just bits and pieces of them in the special. There's a nice little book. Maybe Mark's going to have all of this for us. Well, I'm just thinking, hey, all you Beetle Beetles, listening to this, just go out and make this book. I don't know whose hands the jukebox is in these days. Right. I'm sure it's probably in a museum somewhere. I mean, it was either sold to another individual collector or it went into a museum. 
So the, this isn't the order then, okay? No, no, it's definitely not the order. We might be able to put together a partial order. They show the whole sheet, but then you got to transcribe John's handwriting and figure out exactly which song corresponds to which. Right. But uh, Well, there's so, certain songs that are kind of grouped together. Like there's a, a little section here that's all would be contemporary in 1965. Daydream and Turquoise by Donovan and Positively 4th Street by Bob Dylan, and they're all in a row. It's certainly possible, but I would say we don't know. Right. To answer your question, but I mean, again, it's a jukebox, so why does it necessarily matter if John's going to hit a button unless he, uh, he just wants to hit one button, one, two, button, one, two, and three, and have those three records play? <laughs> right. I was just thinking the way one would load it, perhaps, would be influenced by. That may well be. But that would assume that John was loading it himself. Uh, yeah. And given what we know about John <laughs> and mechanical things, yeah. I kind of doubt that. It was probably a challenge for him to write the names out on this little piece of paper and slip them into the slots correctly. I'm pretty sure this whole jukebox thing was in Mal's purveyance, so we need to talk to Kenneth. <laughs> he would have some idea of what's going on. Plug, plug, Ken's book out, Father's Day next year. Mal Evans, all and everything you want to know. A few years ago, a friend of mine sent me this recorded tape of the Beatles rehearsing, and there is this fragment where John is working his way through Daydream. And uh, there were a, a couple of problems. Uh, so that's great. Do you mean that's all written, say? No, just I mean when people rise at the 12 bar blues. A day for a Fisticuffs. Yeah, none of that. He said it did, didn't he? No. Oh, thanks. He, yes, he did. Um, yes. In the past, well, that's false, too. It's never got to that. Except for a plate of dinner in Hamburg. <laughs> the picture's great, yeah. George Harrison, the same one, speaks out. And if you listen carefully, you can hear him say, uh, damn tunesmiths. Damn Toonsmiths. I love that. <laughs> That's funny. Then it's on to Dylan and Positively 4th Street. We take a little diversion and talk about Joan Baez. <laughs> probably because it's Donovan talking about both himself and Dylan and kind of the folk scene of the era. They saw that was like, wow, what a segue. <laughs> Joan Baez was the goddess of folk music. Of course, Joan Baez... Came backstage and saw them in 66. Right. We've got boatloads of photos of them together. Then the special ends with, well, who else but Donovan? 
Even though the song from Donovan Turquoise was years before, he takes the opportunity to tell us, I taught John Lennon how to do the Travis finger picking. Right. And maybe John felt the stirrings of where we would actually meet again in India, where I would teach him certain things about folk music that he needed to know. <laughs> He's allowed. He's got a story. But they do actually make an attempt to uh, tie it all together. You know, how, how it goes from uh, don't think twice, it's all right, to, to the Carter family to, quote, that stuff, you know, with your fingers. <laughs> right. Dear Prudence, won't you come out to play? Prudence was Mia Farrah's sister. She was in deep meditation. Because the yogi said she had um, to go in there. John didn't know whether she should stay in there. So he wrote this song. Won't you come out to play? The sun is bright. The sky is blue, it's beautiful, and so are you, dear Prudence. Won't you come out to play? You see, I'm a solo artist, and um, maybe that's what John loved about us solo artists, that we could actually do it without a band. He sings, dear Prudence, and he plays the picking style, but the chords don't really resemble what john performed so he didn't really play it but again he's he's allowed <laughs> that's the end of the special and but as you mentioned along with the special was a cd of material there's a couple of points i want to make on the things that they either couldn't get the rights to or they just didn't find a way to interview anybody or, or make it fit in the two things that they really don't have a whole lot of first thing is is the motown stuff there's a smoky song on here there were several songs that actually surprised me such as stepping out by paul revere and the raiders That was kind of an odd choice. Yeah. I also noticed the album put She Said Yeah together with Brown Eyed Handsome Man, both from Run Devil Run. Well, again, Paul certainly probably remembered listening to a lot of this stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, if they were sitting there on the road. So going through some of the songs that weren't mentioned in the show itself, the Jimmy McCracken song, The Walk which we're now all familiar with after Get Back. Don't. Yeah. But John liked it enough that it was actually in his jukebox. Now, the Beatles Get Back version is not representative of the actual song. Go and listen to the actual song. It's, it's a neat little song, I think. Right. Right. 
A song that I wasn't familiar with, other than through the cover, was Daddy Rolling Stone. Oh, I was just going to mention that. That was a, apparently a big song in the clubs, Ad Lib and those clubs. Um, I've heard or several other groups mentioned that song. Saw a Who documentary once. That they covered it, and they actually had some success with it, apparently. Yeah. I'm the daddy. Larry Williams, Short Fat Fanny. Right. Which is, is another one of the get back favorites. Right. The flip of Long Tall Sally was slipping and sliding. Oh, okay. As we commented here, the Buddy Holly representation, there's actually two Buddy Holly songs on here, but one of them is Slippin' and Sliding. So there's two copies of Slippin' and Sliding on this disc, and presumably John had both of the singles in his collection. Buddy Holly's flip of Slippin' and Sliding was Brown Eyed Hates a Man, which, again, Paul would cover. Right. All of this business ties together. Yeah. And that's why it will be interesting as we get more Lennon box sets, you know, maybe we're going to get more of these sort of jam discs like we got with the plastic on a band. You, you can really see how beginning to end, John would keep going back to the same songs. Yeah. I just remembered that there are actually three songs on here by the Miracles. Four, if you count Tracks of My Tears. There is a Chuck Berry song, uh, No Particular Place to Go. Right. That would have been uh, 1964. So it's not quite a contemporary record, but it's not quite old yet, I would say. Right. It's a good list. Agent Double Oso. Agent Double Oso, That had to have been something which, like, Billy Preston or somebody would have mentioned to John. <laughs> Possibly. You know, I kind of can't imagine John just sort of picking up the record, but you never know. The A-sides are all very listenable. Yeah. But I wanted to mention the James Ray song, If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody. Right. James Ray, of course, was George's selection. <laughs> Right, got my mind set on you. So those go together, but got my mind set on you. The single is not in John's jukebox, but if you got to make a fool of somebody, was right. Paul's commented frequently on it that uh, that was what got everybody's attention when they first went and started playing stuff in London. That the groups would all hang around until they played. If you got to make a fool of somebody, because they like the rock and roll waltz. <laughs> all great songs. The thing about these selections is. It's much more R&B and soul oriented than you might have expected. I mean, I can see why he wouldn't want to put any of the Beatles records on there. It's like, yeah, I've heard those enough. Oh, yeah. Although Lieber and Stoller can make a funny comment. It's like, oh, yeah, we, we would put our own songs on, on something like this if we were to carry it around for a year. <laughs> right. We might put one or two of somebody else's, but the, the, the rest of the selection would be stuff that we wrote. Right. You know, the, the Stones wanted us to think that they were the blues band, but you listen, you look at what John was listening to. Yeah, they just didn't play it. I'm not going to do a Stones Beatles. That's not where I'm taking it. I'm just saying that 
you look at the collection and you ask even a fan who is kind of not quite so deep into it, they would be surprised by some of these selections. Yeah. You know, Larry Williams and the Isleys, okay, we'll, we'll get that. But, I mean, you know, the, the stack stuff and, like you say, Double O Soul and the Miracles, or, you know, even some of the Miracles. I mean, of course, they they were big Smokey fans as well. But still, you know, this is a good, oh, 60 70% pretty much hardcore soul and R&B. Right. Out of it what is. John was listening to, so. It is. All right, that is John Lennon Jukebox. You can find the original special from 2004 on YouTube with the original commercials. <laughs> it's 20 years ago, but even 20 years ago is not today, and you can definitely tell that by the advertisements. <laughs> or the, the woman who delivers the uh, the weather at the end of the... <laughs> that as well, yes. So. Uh, th- th- that was definitely not an era of Me Too. <laughs> no. I was uh, really glad to sit down and watch this thing again. And I'd forgotten just how good it is. And having all these people, you know, I mean, of course, where we're at today, a lot of these people are no longer with us. That's the way the world works. (laughs) Having these interviews with them is priceless to a certain extent. Yeah. So, all right. So uh, next week, which will be John's birthday for us, will be a week after John's birthday for you guys. uh, Madeline Baccaro who is the author of uh, the new Yoko Ono biography. What we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about uh, a lot of different things about John and Yoko and their relationship and their artwork, but we're going to look at it through the lens of Japan and John and Yoko. Right. I'm looking forward to it. Which brings us back around to where we started out with the Japanese and the half hour of the Beatles and their time in Japan. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So. All right. Very good. Thanks, y'all. We'll be back next week with that. And as we draw ever closer to the revolver box. Right. And since you're hearing this at that time, happy birthday to John. Yep. And hopefully Ringo's back out on the road, but we'll know by then. Right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. You might like to know that the CD John Lennon's Jukebox is now available. To buy a copy from the ITV shop, log on to itv.com. Well, she's
I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.